Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. First of all, congratulations to Michelle Latimer for taking the People's Choice Documentary Award and the Amplified Voices Award for Best Canadian Feature Film at TIFF for Inconvenient Indian on Sunday. It's wonderful to see her work recognized this way, and you should absolutely keep an eye out for her film. And make sure to check out her television series, Trickster, when it premieres on CBC October 7th. My guest this week is Sarah Polly, a Canadian Screen Award-winning filmmaker and Oscar-nominated screenwriter who wrote and directed the features Away From Her and Take This Waltz and the masterful documentary Stories We Tell, and wrote and produced the recent CBC adaptation of Margaret Atwood's Alias Grace. You may also have seen her in some movies and television shows. I've been trying to get her to do this podcast pretty much since the day I conceived of it, and it took 300 episodes, but here we are. Sarah picked The Thin Red Line, Terence Malick's 1998 drama about the Guadalcanal campaign, which U.S. forces waged against Japan in the Pacific from August 1942 to February 1943. Ostensibly based on the novel by James Jones, Malick's movie is about far more than just the battle. He's out to ask grand questions about what war does to the human soul and our understanding of the world. If I'm being honest, this wasn't a film I cared for all that much the first time around. But, well, you'll see. This is someone else's movie. The Thin Red Line is probably the, it is the film that has influenced me the most in terms of my life. Um, I obviously don't make films like The Thin Red Line, but um, it is the film that lifted me and carried me to a completely different place in my life when I saw it. And I think everyone who loves films or books or music has a story of, you know, the album or the book or the film that did that for them. And for me, The Thin Red Line was that moment before I saw The Thin Red Line was a different life than the one um, I led after. And I, uh, I saw it when I was 20, I think. And I had never been interested in making films. I didn't like being in films. I thought um, film and television was the most superficial industry in the world. Um, I didn't understand why anyone would choose to make a life in that industry. I'd felt sort of chained to it since I was a kid. And I had just left LA and dropped out of a big movie and realized I just didn't want any part of being in film at all. And then I was sort of in a depression after that because it was like, that was sort of the the entire structure of my life, but I knew I didn't want it. And then I went to see The Thin Red Line and I didn't know anything about it. And I didn't know who Terrence Malick was. And I was absolutely not um, a film literate person. And I thought it was going to be like another Saving Private Ryan because that came out the same year. And so I went in with absolutely no expectations in this kind of depressed, rootless um, time of my life. And I left that theater not depressed anymore. And I left the theater wanting to make films. I left the theater thinking that art was not a superficial way to spend your time. Um, I left with a sense that I understood what faith was, which I had not understood before. Um, Not that I had faith of my own because of it, but that I understood what it meant to have faith for the first time. Um, I'd grown up in a family of militant atheists, (laughs) like, you know, that kind of like atheists that make religious people look fairly relaxed. Like, like, you know, like, like the sort of, 
you know, evangelical atheist like Richard Dawkins. I would have described my dad that way. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, this idea of being even open to the idea of a spiritual life or something beyond what was tangible and concrete was completely new for me in terms of thinking. So it just blew my whole head open, basically. And it blew open my heart and it made me... I remember the thought that I had as I left the theater was, I may not have faith, but I have faith in other people's faith. And I have faith that if a human being can make something this beautiful, you know, that's that's a spirituality in it of itself. Um, so... I'm so grateful to the film. It's so so much more than a film for me, and I'm grateful to it all the time. And then it was really interesting re-watching it and sort of having those thoughts and questions and looking back at my life since then. Was is yeah. that? I feel like everyone gives a long answer to that question on your podcast. So was that particularly long, or was that? That's about there, average. Okay, good. All right. People it do is, just tend to like pontificate when you ask that question. The beauty of it is it took me a while for me to figure out how to start the podcast that way, because once I got around to it, so I mean, it used to be like, when did you first see it? Or what was your first exposure to the ideas of the filmmaker? And then it's just like, no, why did you pick this movie? Because then the uh -huh. talking starts. It's uh -huh. like, it's, it's an unburdening. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't realize that was your first experience of Malik. Yeah. Which... I hadn't seen Badlands or Days of Heaven before that. And I suppose there were only the two, right? So it wouldn't be, it's just... How did, yeah, I, I mean, I knew who he was. I had seen the other two films and I had, and I remember we talked about, the, well, I, I, I guess the listener deserves to know, we rewatched this together mm -hmm. uh, a couple of months ago before everything went away. And I did not like The Thin Red Line the first time I saw it. And I hadn't seen it in at least maybe 10 years. And, and we watched it together and you were into it, but what amazed me was that I was into it. I loved it this time, and I wouldn't have revisited it if you hadn't picked it. So that that in itself is its own revelation to me. It was really fun watching you be so into it because I knew you were a huge fan. It was really fun because I could feel, you know, when you could feel the person next to you is having the same experience. And you and I had sat together at the press screening at TIFF for the new the Hidden Life. film, yeah. Hidden Life, and it was like that experience of being transported by something and knowing the per you can just feel that the person next to you is as well. And you're so grateful that you're not, it's almost like that feeling of like, okay, I'm not crazy. Something <laughs> magnificent is happening, but it was really exciting to see that happen with a thin red line with you. I have to say. Yeah. Well, I'm, it almost never happens that I do a 180. I have to admit. And I'm trying to figure out if the reason I came around on it is that I, had that revelation again with The Hidden Life because I loved The Tree of Life and then I spent 10 years being disappointed by Malick. Yeah. Uh, the movies in the interim were just not that, they didn't grab me. I could see what he was doing and I accepted and he's working his thing out. But it felt to me like he said everything he needed to say in The Tree of Life and that that was it. And then he made A Hidden Life and, you know, all of a sudden, and I was, I mean, we ran into each other at the at the screening, we sat down and I said... I haven't liked anything of his in 10 years and you made a face and then the movie started and then the movie's over and we're both in tears. It's just like, okay, he got it back now, whatever it is, I'm good. The other and thing that you did after we saw Hidden Life was something that I'm so glad to have learned, which is you looked at me and said, I don't think I can talk about this right now. <laughs> I need to process it. And I didn't know you were allowed to do that after a movie. And once you gave me the words, I was like, thank God you did that. Because it would have completely diluted the experience to speak about it in that moment. And you do want that moment of just, 
I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a cinephile. I mean, I'm, tr I'm, I'm learning about film now and I, I love movies now, but this is new for me. Like for me, films have always been this visceral experience. It's been something that has moved me or changed me or made me angry or left me cold, or it's been like a, something that happens to me, not something that I analyze or that I feel particularly literate about. Right. So to have that language, to be able to say to some, the person beside you, I, I can't talk about this right now. I need to just have that. I need my subconscious to work on a little bit before my conscious brain gets, you know, in there to muck it all up. That was such a great thing to have. Anyway. Yeah. I just well, it's the, it's the worst thing about seeing movies at a film festival too, because you, there's another one in 10 minutes and you have to digest the thing you've just experienced and move on. Um, and it isn't until later that you can, I mean, it was easy in that case because like it was literally the first press screening, the first official press screening of TIFF, yeah. uh, that morning, the Thursday morning of the festival at 9am and a three hour movie. And it was just, it was such a great peak that I could just stop and yeah, I didn't want to do anything else. I mean, we, we talked half seriously about just not bothering with any other movies that day, but there was other stuff to do. And, I, and I, I really regretted all the rest of the movies I saw after that, even though some of them were very good, because they were, they were great movies. They weren't what Terrence Malick does at his best, which I think he does in The Thin Red Line, which is, it is, he invites you into what he thinks about the entire universe. <laughs> and so yeah. after you see that, you're like, well, what the hell is the point of doing anything else with your life? I mean, honestly, you're going to make a movie after that with a story that's kind of fun. Like, that's what you're going to do with your time. That guy is inviting you into his belief about and his feeling about all of creation. <laughs> so it's a very hard act to follow. And it makes you, you know, it makes you a, a bad audience for other films. I think him at his best. And, you know, I do think that, you know, the reason why the films maybe after the thin red line, you love the tree of life. I'm, I'm not as huge a fan as the tr of the tree of life. Although I think there's moments of exquisite beauty in it. It's not one of my favorite of his films, but I just okay. think the lesson is you take 21 year pauses between films. And that's what I'm working on. My 21 year <laughs> pause. between films, Cause I'm convinced if I just wait another, I'm, I'm like up to nine years now, I've just got another, you know, 12 years to go. And then That's I'll be the able to make a movie like The Thin Red Line. I just need to, you know, stew a little bit. I mean, <laughs> it's not an illogical proposition. How long was there? It was only 12 years between The Thin Red Line and The Tree of Life, though. So, right. although you don't like That's it as much, so maybe that's good. the key. That's why yeah. it's good. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> what I mean about Tree of Life and, and A Hidden Life putting The Thin Red Line in perspective for me is that he was doing that then and I didn't catch it. I just oh, wasn't prepared for it because you know, Days of Heaven, it's lyrical, but it has a structure. It has a plot. It has a progression. And I think the Thin Red Line, for me, the, the weight of the expectations of, oh my God, this is a new Terrence Malick film and it has all these stars in it who are willing to work with him at whatever cost to their own schedules and their own time and he's been putting it together and it's I mean I'd known that there was narration and it was originally performed by another actor and then they changed that around and it had this tortured production process because all of his films are just I think he tinkers with them until he thinks they they're right and then even thinks about like what the new world thinks about tinkering with them again and I saw it and I remember just feeling oh that's what he did that's what he chose to do and 
I didn't think about it again. I just never thought about it again, other than I kind of get it, but I'm not that interested in it. And then after the subsequent films, this movie makes sense in the continuum of his work in a way that it didn't until there was more of it, if that makes any sense. That does it's, make it's, sense. It's interesting. I mean, it's it was funny because I, I, in preparation for this, I was looking back at the reviews of Then Then Redline at the time, and I was just expecting to read that it was the greatest film ever made. But yeah, Janet Maslin, like, you know, nobody... I mean, people would, you know, some reviewers talked about moments of, you know, brilliance, but it, it, it didn't land the way I remembered it landing but I guess I wasn't really reading reviews at the time I was just reading my own review (laughs) (laughs) which is a worse form of torture I would imagine (laughs) but yeah Thin Red Line was basically not Saving Private Ryan was the thrust of most of the reviews I read like six months later what's the point I remember when Platoon and Full Metal Jacket came out within six months of each other there was the same kind of weird gamesmanship in, in the reviews and if you they like have nothing when you to do with each other i mean saving private ryan and like I mean, the thin red line isn't about war like it, i mean it uses war as a way of speaking about a lot of other things and saving private ryan is about war and i remember just being so horrified at the time the films were getting conflated yeah and so upset by it um yeah like i felt so like i had such a personal stake in people knowing that this film again was something other than a film i mean i've always had this theory that that filmmakers, if they, you know, were in a time where the technology to be a filmmaker didn't exist, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 years ago, that they would be divided into writers or adventurers, like voyagers. Okay. Um, and that they sort of fall into those two categories. Like most filmmakers I've met, in another time, they would either be writers or they would be adventurers. And... I feel like Terrence Malick just breaks that for me because he would be a preacher. He would be, you know, a spiritual man. He would be somebody trying to save people. He would not be a filmmaker. So I think that the films he makes are just, they have, they're, they're, they exist for a completely different reason than storytelling in a way. Like, it's not about storytelling. And there are stories within it, but that's never the point. The narrative is never the point. Yeah, it's the it's the excuse, right? Like, it's the reason that the film gets made is that, oh, this one's about World War II. This one's about Guadalcanal. This one is about mm-hmm. John Smith and Pocahontas. That's not really what the New World is about either. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in both cases, actually, the two those two films fit together really, really elegantly in their both about the violation of the natural world and the way that that human incursion never makes anything better, and that that shot of the at the very end of, of the thin red line of the bird of paradise, growing out of the water, it's just it's heartbreaking in an inexpressible way because all it is is a still life. There's nothing to it except the three hours that we've just spent watching the blood spilled and the battle and the noise and the horror over that piece of space, over that little bit of the world where, you know, no one belongs there. The natives are there, but they're not harming anything. They're not hurting each other. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's almost a little bit of a, oh, what am I trying to say? This is the problem. We can't articulate this, these themes of his because they just float. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's this, I'm, I'm, I guess you could argue briefly that because we first experienced it through Caviezel's, Jim Caviezel's character, uh, who is AWOL and just living a life with with the indigenous people of 
whatever little atoll he's on, because it's not Guadalcanal, he ends up going to Guadalcanal, um, that there is a little bit of a white savior thing going on where, mm-hmm. where a reverse white savior, because it's the same dynamic that plays in the new world, which is when the white guy shows up, things don't get better. The, um, the world was fine before we get there. Mm-hmm. The, the, the native population is idyllic. And I mean, that's, that's the thing that I keep wondering, like, is Malik making a commentary on that? Because it's not an invasion in the same way that a lot of other historical um, narratives present an invasion. The Americans are there to liberate Guadalcanal the same way that, well, not the same way, that, but the same way that John Smith thinks he's going to make the new world a better place in the new in the new world in the film but i don't know that malik believes that i think he's showing us how they feel and i don't know that it's you know you could argue that the thin red line is giving you the version of an idyllic native world that caviezel's character sees because yeah, we're hearing I his mean, thoughts right there's things, is it what i i think that there i think you're sort of you're you're landing on something that's uncomfortable, which is that there there are things um, to trip on in this film, for sure. Yeah. Like, as much as I revere it, there are things to trip on. And, you know, one thing I will say about Malick's movies, which I had been blind to because I'm so in love with his movies, which an actor who actually acts in his films, um, I won't say who, pointed out to me, is that, you know, women are not three-dimensional in his films. And it's it's surprising to me that my favorite filmmaker of all time doesn't always capture women in a very substantial way. They're either completely pure and of God and um, innocent, or they're, you know, they've been somehow corrupted. And then, um, and I think too, there is a little bit of a white savior thing there at the beginning. I think that's there. I think that it's something that, at the time that I saw it, I don't think I noticed and that I notice now. Um, so that was like a moment where I was sort of like tripping a little while we were watching it. Um, at the same time, you're right. I mean, the, the, the white saviors are the problem for that island, not the, yeah. you know, they're certainly not actually saving anybody. And I think that one of the things I really like is the way when we are with that company of American men and they're trying to take that hill for so much of the movie. I didn't remember how long they're trying to take that hill. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the enemy we perceive from their point of view, which is totally dehumanized. Like there are these ominous shots from behind, you know, the Japanese lines where it, there's just this inhuman, terrifying presence that they're edging towards. And then as soon as you go over the line and you see the horror and the, bloodshed and like what is hap what happens to those men on the Japanese side mm-hmm. um you're sort of confronted with the way you've been reeled into this dehumanization of them as the enemy it's very powerful and I think actually what he's trying to do there is um it is to sort of expose something in us that we have been made to feel afraid of that enemy as not quite human or not as human as our heroes until we cross over the enemy line and we see that they are exactly as human and that there is a barbarism in the American soldiers that, you know, we had somehow projected onto these unseen men behind these lines. I think it's really incredible the way he illustrates that. So it's complicated. I don't think it's, um, it's not as insidious as, 
uh, as it could be, but it's also not perfect. Um, yeah. and, and he is, you know, he is of a time and of a gender and of a sexual orientation where I think um, there he's he's tripping a little sometimes. But he's trying yeah. really hard. <laughs> he's trying really hard not to. And I, I feel like um, I feel like he's someone you could have that conversation with. I don't know, yeah. him, but I feel like you could have the conversation. Well, and every time he does it, I'm rooting for him to find his way through. Like, I don't find it, I don't think it's offensive. I don't think it's intended to be offensive. And yeah. I'm aware that there are depictions that don't always work. There, I, I don't know if you've seen his, the IMAX project, Voyage of Time. Uh, there's a 45-minute documentary. I mean, it's not a documentary. It's, it's, it's basically an expansion of the creation sequence from the Tree of Life. So it's about all of history and everything. And it it includes... A, uh, I saw the 90-minute version at TIFF, uh, which is the non-IMAX version, but still pretty big. Um, it includes a scene of what he seems to think is the dawn of man, which is a bunch of uh, non-dialogue uh, sort of interpretive sequences of, of actors dressed as Cro-Magnons with a little stuff on their heads to I'm indicate... I'm really glad that's not in it. Yeah, well, Cause... he cast um, <laughs> uh, literally Australian Aboriginal men and wow. it is it is awkward it is that's it's i mean the whole movie is just bad that's, but, uh, but that sequence is one of those things where it's like okay you think you're doing something and it's not the thing that's happening that's yeah i'm really glad i didn't see that yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, we have what works in the new world and and the thin red line which is the sense of as you say these people are invaders they're yeah they're not saving anybody and because I think the other thing too is that Thin Red Line specifically asceticizes everyone. You know, Caviezel's introduced in basically khaki shorts. He's just he's a beautiful man. The, the sun is shining on him. The water is dappled with with brilliance and beauty. And it's just it's such an Edenic image that of course he's a good person. He wouldn't be allowed to be here if he wasn't a good person. This this whole world is set up for him to be saintly and then we spend the rest of the movie watching him just get progressively dirtier, bloodier, brutalized by the world that he was avoiding before. And that adds this tragic dimension to someone who we really still don't know at all. Mm-hmm. We only have his actions to to tell us who he is. And if you look at it from the military side, he's a deserter who ran off. And he's he's just the only reason that he goes to war is because they think that's a punishment for him rather than sending him home. And he's the hero. He's the guy who emerges as the most soulful and moving presence in the whole film just because he appreciates, I assume it's because he appreciates nature the same way Malik does, that he just wants yeah. to be left alone to to be in this world. And that performance by Jim Caviezel, is, it's just one of the most incredible performances. I just can't remember a time that I've like looked into an actor's eyes and believed them so completely and believed in them. Like I just I, I I just find the way when he's looking at Woody Harrelson as he's dying and Woody Harrelson's yeah. looking into his eyes and you just think, you know, we should all be so lucky when we die to be looking into a face that open and kind and present. And it, I it's just a, the most stunningly beautiful performance of empathy. Um, yeah, just the sort of empathy and openness and wonder in him it's almost childlike it's just uh it's astonishing 
yeah, just the presence, right? Like the unaffected physical presence and the watchfulness and, and that he can do that to a camera uh, as easily as to another actor. It's, I always think I underestimate Caviezel and I, I, and this is why it's just, he is capable of this, this, this deep well of, of sympathy. Yeah. And then he makes a movie like Angel Eyes where he does the same thing and it doesn't work because the film doesn't know what to do with it. And I, and I just, I remember that one standing out specifically because it's such a dopey movie, but he is trying to do the same thing. He is trying to be someone who is endlessly human and sympathetic and the, the script just betrays him and the direction doesn't do anything with it. But it's, it's like Malik gets it. Malik can harness this quality of his. And everybody else in the film is given the opportunity at the same at various points given the same opportunity to be open and and human and it's not like anyone else fails it's just that Caviezel does it better than anybody else uh-huh. because we spend so much time with him I mean think about Ben Chaplin or Adrian Brody people who are given moments to be intensely present um yeah Chap- the story goes Chaplin thought he was the star of the film until he saw it and realized he'd been all of his dialogue was gone. He'd been cut completely out of it. I, I know that's not the only actor. Yeah, Adrian Brody to. had the same experience of that. Yeah, where I think, yeah, this was a big, his huge movie for him and found out in the screening that it was not a huge movie for him, which is an odd thing. I have to say that for all my sort of glorification of Terrence Malick, the idea of not preparing an actor adequately for that moment in a screening room seems odd to me (laughs) yeah Um, but there are so many great moments from so many great actors like one thing i had forgotten until we rewatched it was jared leto who you know all he's doing is like kind of go go you know he's basically just chewing gum looking around but he's a genius he's a genius in that movie he's so good like there's just so many beautiful great tiny moments and Elias coteas who's just extraordinary in that Mm -hmm. film it just such a performance it's it's such a performance. I had completely forgotten he was in it. Um, there's a few people that I had completely forgotten even appeared in the film. And it's just because he had his pick of actors, even then, anybody, you know, who he asked would work with him, would jump at it. Yes. You just, you get this, this wall of talent. Um, people like Penn and, and, I mean, Travolta is being kind of preposterous, but I think he's doing it with intent. I think that's what Malik wanted. Yeah, kind of. It may be the one false note in the movie along with Sean Penn. I can't remember what Sean Penn says at um, his gravestone when Jim Caviezel's character dies. He says something like, where's that spark now or something? And I remember going like, oh, that's weird. (laughs) That didn't belong in the movie. And I feel a little bit like that about John Travolta's performance where it somehow doesn't quite, uh, it doesn't quite fit in the same way everything else does. Nick Nolte, yeah. I love though. I, I, I mean, all I had remembered of Nick Nolte was him screaming into the phone, and then when I saw it again, I thought, "Oh my god!" Like it's so much more complex and layered and interesting than I remembered it. Yeah, I think that's the thing about the narration that really brings the character home is is Nolte. If he hadn't been given that little moment, which and you know originally it was recorded by Billy Bob Thornton, it wasn't even going to be his own voice. Oh wow. Uh, Thornton did all the narration, and then Malik decided to replace it with the given actor. Like whoever's in the shot is now the narrator which gives them all a common humanity, but also for Nolte specifically creates this really interesting conflict because as written, 
that guy is an asshole. He is told to be harsh, and that's all we ever see of him. But because we are first introduced to him thinking and doubting and wondering, everything else plays as, oh, he's just doing his job. He's doing the best version of his job. He's trying to be the guy they want him to be. But I don't, I know he's deeper than this. Mm -hmm. So I found myself incredibly sympathetic to him, even as he is screaming to get people to their deaths. Mm -hmm. He's like, he doesn't want to do that. It's just, he's obviously, I'm building this whole backstory for him. I guess he was an enlisted man and he came up through the ranks and he's just, he's conflicted about this position, but he's obviously like, he's going to follow orders and do what they told him to do. And it's only because the narration conflicts with his character. Otherwise, he is that guy. He's just a hard case who's yelling at people and getting them to to you know snap out of shock and keep fighting and die because that's the job and that choice of Malik's is like it's inspired it's it changed it completely changes my perspective on the character and it makes him human in a way that he otherwise simply would not be i mean of all the americans he's the one with like he has the least texture without that introduction it's interesting. It makes me think that what he's giving each character in those voiceovers is it's it's giving us access to their big questions. Like mm-hmm. what are what are what are what are the big questions that each of them have? And none of them really get resolved. It's just it's almost what makes a person is what questions they walk around with. And the way it begins that movie like why does nature vie with itself? Yeah, I've been thinking about it so much lately during this pandemic. Like, why does nature vow with itself? You know, like, it's just like in my brain all the time with that image of that crocodile going underneath the water. Um, but it is, it's just like, what are the big questions of each of these characters and what, it, what, is Ter- what are Terrence Malick's big questions? And I love that he, he reaches no resolution and yet has enormous faith coinciding with those questions. Yeah. I wonder if it's because, in this case, the, the war galvanizes it in a specific way because so many of these kids are going to die before they get the answers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when I saw uh, the film the first time, I saw it at the York, the, the dearly departed great big 70 millimeter theater. And it was a preview audience, so there must have been four or 500 people there. And when Woody Harrelson's character dies, it got a laugh at first because he's saying, I blew my butt off and that's Woody from Cheers. And oh, wow. some, some, some part of the audience was geared for, this is funny, right? And then I watched it and watching, and I knew then it wasn't a comic moment, but then watching it again this time, just the, the wonder and the, the, like the, the way the fear melts into something transcendent on his face in that sequence and the way he handles terror turning into curiosity yeah. maybe or con- like the way the confusion boils away that's like that's an incredible performance from him in that one moment it's and an otherwise, incredible it's an incredible moment yeah. yeah yeah and how do you get there i mean and I get, that it's I, held I, it's held by jim caviezel i mean i really think as an actor you can't you can't do something as sort of wholehearted and difficult is what he does there without someone to hold it. And Jim Caviezel's just holding his performance there for him. It's just amazing. It's not the kind of thing I expect from Malick either, just the the intimacy of that sort of thing. I mean, we have characters who face death in his movies all the time. Uh, we have characters who kill in his movies all the time. But there's something about the way this film plays those moments where, you know, someone will take three steps forward, get shot and fall down. And then other people are given three or four minutes to expire. And then there's, there's peace in it. Like everything else in the movie goes away. 
the sound design changes, our focus changes. It's, I mean, that is, I think it's like dead center in the film too when that happens. It's <laughs> an hour and a half in that Harrelson dies. And then that pivots into the rest of the way up the hill and everybody else um, still dying, still fighting, still moving forward. But it's haunting. It's it's this it's this black hole in the center of the film that never really goes away. This thing, this feeling that in the middle of this massive senseless conflict, which is ultimately it's just it's these people are dying over a quarter inch of, of a spot on a map. This one guy kills himself by accident. It's yeah. just a terrible mistake, and it's still the most tragic thing. Yeah. The question I ask people in interviews all the time is, when did you know this would work? And, you know, when did this? When did you understand this project could happen? And I would love to ask Malik that about this film yes. more than anything else he's done, because it's so far beyond the scope of his other work before and since. It's yeah. got so many moving parts. It's such a massive, and just you know, the the visual effects alone. There's stuff blowing up. There are pyrotechnics. There's battleships and and, and mm-hmm. airplanes and everything. All there's. It, it's a, it's such a bigger canvas than he's ever had before. Well, I'd also like to ask him the question. You know how how do you feel so confident that you're okay with not being understood? You know, during yeah. the pro- I mean, now people sort of know about his process. So if he disappears for a day where he's supposed to be shooting a battle scene and films birds instead, everyone's like, okay, there goes Terrence Malick being Terrence Malick. Yeah. But then, you know, I, I heard stories from that set where, you know, he was supposed to be shooting some pivotal scene and, you know, him and Jim Caviezel were just off splashing in the waves instead, or, you know, they're filming birds or, you know, like wh- what is going on. And I don't know if it's being a female filmmaker or if it's um, a sense of just common decency, but I could just never let that many people sit around and wait and not know what the hell I was doing and be mysterious about it. Do you know what I mean? But it like it must require yeah. such chutzpah to go, yeah, I'm going to let everybody think I'm wasting a lot of money and time and being crazy for weeks and weeks because I know this is, I'm following the engine of this film instead of what people are expecting me to do. I mean, I just, I, again, I don't think you could actually do that as a female filmmaker. Like uh, at least not when I've been making films, like you have to be, I remember like, you know, a female filmmaker, prominent female filmmaker telling me you better be right on budget you better, you know, get get your days because you will be called a flake the second you step out of line. And so I just wonder sometimes, like, well, is that even possible for a female filmmaker to behave that way and to make a film that brilliant because you're not given that room? But at the same time, I think it's so great he did it. I think it's so great he, you know, had the ability to see what he didn't expect, what he didn't plan, to find a film that wasn't in his imagination before it appeared before him. And to follow that film instead of the one that he wrote. I mean, I think that's what makes it brilliant, what makes it amazing. It's just, I just want to know, what is it about him that made that process something he could follow through with? You know what I mean? Like, it just takes such confidence. And I mean, the truth is, if I was willing to, like, you know, go through the process like that, I still wouldn't make a film as brilliant as The Thin Red Line. It's not like that's what's holding me back, but... Um, but I, I, I'm just so curious about the personality who can do that. And maybe it is someone who's lived a life, you know, 21 years since your last film, you've been living in another life who cares what a bunch of film people think about you. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is, but, but it does involve hurting people too. Right. I mean, there are actors who thought they were central in that film 
who, when it came time for them to be shooting their scenes, have told me, yeah, there he was off with Jim, who wasn't actually supposed to have a major part in that film. And I was. And that was a bruising, horrific experience for those actors to sort of feel like turned away from mid-shoot. Um, so yeah. it's what makes the film great, I think, that he, you know, turned towards what the film should be and not what he imagined it to be originally. But you have to be very sure of yourself and very unconcerned with what others think of you to do that in a, in, I think a great way. And I think in a, in a slightly questionable way. Yeah. It's the, it's the God thing, right? Like he is making a film about the quest for God, but he is acting like a deity. He's denying people his love. He's denying people favor. He's changing, he's, he's, changing his favorites and, and recalculating his creation. Um, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> or, or is it more that because he feels like he's doing this in the service of God, like he is making his films in the service of God, that that gives him a confidence to disappoint people. Because what he's okay. actually doing is, I, 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 like I, maybe it's more, maybe I just don't want to think of him as someone who has a God complex. But I, I think I like the idea that maybe he just sees that the priority is bigger than you know, a human being's feelings on any particular day. He's trying to bring um, bring his faith to people. I don't know. I wonder. Because I, I, he's made so many films that are not the films he set out to make. Yeah. Um, to, uh, to the Wonder was heavily recut. There's, well, I mean, there's an, another cut of Tree of Life that's 40 minutes longer on the, uh, on the Criterion edition. And it's it's a good experience, but it's not the the purity of the of the theatrical cut so maybe he's you know maybe he's right whatever whatever inspiration he's following especially after a hidden life i will defer to him i'm gonna let him do what he does but it is like you're getting all of these people to believe in you and your project and then you're casting them out yeah um in a way but if it serves i don't know i I, i'd love to talk to somebody who was cut from one of the films to find out how how they feel about it Uh, chastain i think was was into the wonder until she wasn't. Oh wow! And okay. and that might be worth. It might have been better someday. if she had stayed in it. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's, it's missing some stuff. It's definitely. missing some stuff. Yeah. But um, uh, the only other this is a bad comparison. I'm, I, as soon as I start talking about it, I realize I'm not even going to keep this part because it's weird. But the only <laughs> other the only other filmmaker who is this capricious, maybe we should keep it, is Woody Allen, uh, who reshoots entire films if he doesn't like. I them. didn't even know that. Yeah, September is actually the second version of that film. He completely recast it. I think maybe there's wow, there's like an exterior shot that was left in. What's so weird about is that he he does so few takes. So it's like, why don't you just take more time and get it right instead of making the movie over again? Anyway, yeah, and the and the films are. I mean, they're equally concerned with an absent God and people trying to understand the world they live in, but they just. I don't know. He doesn't seem to have the. The investment, the, the he doesn't have the willingness to probe as deeply of himself as Malik does, clearly, right? Because that's what makes Malik's films so great. They're all about self-interrogation. The, I mean, the reason I love Tree of Life so much is it's the first movie where he just stops pretending his movies aren't about him. It's about a kid in the 50s in Texas. That's, yeah, yeah. That's him, yeah. right? Like, that's his story. And I know we, we talked about this at the time, but the, the fascination I have with the dinosaurs is you're watching a child try to figure out if if these creatures had mercy and grace and, and it, 
it's a huge leap for an adult man to put that scene in a movie. Yeah. But... It uh, really uh, lost... I mean, as I've told you before, that movie really loses me at the dinosaurs. As soon as we see right. the dinosaurs, I, I'm, not, I'm not there anymore. And I tried to watch it again with your analysis, but it just... <laughs> It's, I, I don't know what is happening at a certain point in that movie. Yeah, I mean, no, I don't, I don't I need it. to know what's happening at a certain point in that, that movie, but it's, 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 it's the, the, the issue I have is beyond that. It's more to do with, it just starts to get like so weird and almost silly at, in that point. And then it gets amazing again. I mean, there's so much that's great in it, but definitely not yeah. my favorite, favorite Terrence Malick film. Yeah. That's, I think that's what I love about it. The fact that it can go so cosmic and then just yeah. be about a person getting a phone call about a parent. You know, yeah. that you can contain both of those worlds in the same person, which is, you know, so clearly who he is. I did love the stuff with the toddler. Where I love the stuff of the way he captures children. And unfortunately, he captures women in the same way he captures children, as they're always twirling in a field somewhere and, like, staring at dust and the light. And that's great yeah. a couple times, but then you're like, I think this is all women do in his movies. But I love the way he captures it when it's with children. And I remember the toddler in Tree of Life. It's so beautiful the way he captures that play and looking at light and looking at the new baby and i think of it often when i watch my own toddler i'm always thinking of those moments in the tree of life and that's i mean again that's i think that comes back to who's reacting right because you've got brad pitt doing that amazing twinkly thing he does with the baby's hand Mm -hmm. where that should not work like that scene should be Mm -hmm. incredibly cheesy but we are we are walked to it and you get that wonder, you get that sense of peace and calm in, in Pitt's face. And I'd never seen that gear in him before. I'd never seen yeah. a director get that out of him before. And, and yeah, and Chastain, who I think she'd made one other movie. She was in the Pacino Salome thing, which no one had seen yet when Tree of Life was made. And she's phenomenal. But yeah, you're right. She only exists as an idealized version of that yeah. character, of the, of the mother figure. It's funny when you say that, that you see that in Brad Pitt and you see that in actors. I do, I do feel like I never want to act ever. That's sort of just always been the way I've felt. But he's the one director I would have loved to work with as an actor. I think mostly because I feel like he might make me believe in God. <laughs> like It's like you see that look in their face like, you know, what is that? What is going on with Brad Pitt right now? Oh, my God. Is he believing? It's like, I just want Terrence Malick. To just put me in a room and make me believe in God, and I would I would act again if I thought that was possible. <laughs> I think that's what his movies are. Yeah, I, I think you're right. He's the preacher. He's the he's guiding us towards something. And it works. I mean, that's the thing is you don't have to be religious to get oh, that God, experience not, yeah. from him of the sublime of of feeling that a veil has been lifted between you and something else. He. He transports you. I think if you let yourself and surrender to his films, he can he can put you in a place you would not otherwise be if you're not, you know, a very spiritual person. Yeah, I certainly am not. I at best I believe in other people. Um and art. That's you know, that's the closest I get to a, to being allowed to have a religion, uh, in my own terms. But I yeah, again, A Hidden Life is a kind of movie that makes me believe that it's worth believing. Yeah, exactly. And I would uh, say I'm agnostic. I would say I, I grew up atheist. I would say I'm agnostic. But I have moments where I really believe in something that then fade and then come back and then fade and then come back. And I feel like I... But what I am is fascinated with other people's faith and really... Um, really curious about it and always wanting to know more. What I'm not is... 
an atheist who thinks that everybody who believes in God is an idiot. And that's sort of what I grew up around. And I, again, I, I feel that that was more fanatically religious than most religious people I've met is this idea that you're absolutely certain there can be nothing. And everyone who thinks that something is out there is a complete idiot. And I guess I like that. I guess when I think about the thin red line, I think that seeing the film was the beginning of that opening in me and that belief in me and that turning away from a sort of fanaticism around atheism and actually just being curious and being open and wondering about other people's faith. So it's the, the dawn of, it's not empathy, right? Cause you've already had empathy for people. It's just the sense that faith might have its own value. I don't, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out myself too. Cause I went through the same period of, um, I was never very religious. Uh, my family was sort of, lip service you know, go to, go to synagogue on the high holidays kind of thing. Uh, I never bought into it. And a, a younger cousin of mine got very, very sick when he was just eight or nine. And that kind of pushed me away from religion entirely. It's like, nope, that's, that's not fair. This is not the way the world should work. The way the world described to me at the age of 12 is supposed to work. And then I got into that whole thing too, when I was a, a teenager and probably way into my twenties, where it was just like, I organized religion is just for people who can't handle the the void, right? Like, oh, you, it's it's a crutch. And subsequently, I've come around to the idea that for some people, at least, that I've met, I think faith is a comfort and I think faith is a way of managing the world. But it's not because you're afraid of the world. It's about believing in a better world. It's a belief that people can be better. And subsequently, like I'm as agnostic, atheistic as they come, I would love there to be something else because that would be a comfort. I just, and I, I kind of envy it in people who have it now, but I'm also okay with people having it as long as it's the faith that doesn't, you know, slander or defame or hurt other people. Yeah. And, and so much of, of organized religion seems to be devoted to weaponizing rage and, and ignorance. Mm-hmm. That stuff I have no time for. But Malik's movies make me want to be open to something. Yeah. I just don't know what it I mean, is that I I'm open to. At its best, faith helps people to do great things and have the strength to really contribute and help other people in a way that I think um, people, and certainly for me for a lot of my life, really struggle to figure out how to be of service. I think that notion of being of service in the world is a really valuable one that sometimes is a part of faith. And sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it is about judgment and it is about um, casting out and it's about uh, attacking. But I think at its best, I have met people in my life who do good on such a scale in their everyday life that I don't think is actually even possible without having some kind of belief and some kind of good in the world, whether that be just a, a general sense of good. I mean, I'm thinking about Vim Vendors when I'm talking right now. I'm thinking about someone who's just so absurdly generous and so absurdly almost out of control reaching out and trying to help and make better and how can I nurture how can I be available how can I mentor how can I I think about um thinking about a lot of people I'm thinking about you know my grade two teacher I'm thinking about there are just certain people I've met in my life where their faith has been uh the grounding they had to be as uh good and helpful and generous as they are 
And I've met, I've met people who don't believe in anything who are, who are also doing incredible work and their faith in humanity and the idea that this is all there is can also be very motivating, I think, to, to do good. But I just feel like um, this wholesale rejection of faith as ignorant is really ignorant um, because as much as you can look around at wars and conflict and judgment as coming from organized religion, you know, you can also look at incredible self-sacrifice and kindness and, and good work as coming from faith as well. I think, I think there's a lot of evidence to support both. So again, I feel like Terrence Malick was the beginning for me of, of turning away from fanatical atheism and I'm very (laughs) grateful for it. Yeah. I, I think you should just put feelers out that you're interested in acting just so he reaches out. <laughs> you uh, know what? I wrote him a letter when I, I was asked to audition for him, I think for the tree of life. And I couldn't, I think I was, I think I was making a film, which I wouldn't have been doing if I hadn't seen the Thed red line. It's kind of ironic. So I would have been available <laughs> if he hadn't made um, a film that inspired me to make be a filmmaker. But I remember um, sending him a letter and saying, I just want to say thank you because, you know, you, this changed my life and everything I've said in this interview, I basically said in the letter. And he wrote me back a letter that was typed on a typewriter, which was just <gasps> like, it was like someone doing an impression of Terrence Malick. It was so amazing. It was just <laughs> the most lovely letter. And I can't remember what it said, but it was something like, um, you know, when when you make films, you hope that it, it, that it touches someone this way or it has this kind of response. And it was just such a generous thing to write me back and considering I wasn't coming down to audition and um, <laughs> it was just lovely. So, well, that's wonderful. He is this incredible mystery because, you know, he doesn't do press. There's that amazing YouTube clip of, of a, a camera crew rushing up to Christian Bale in the set of Knight of Cups and he's standing next to Malik and the, the reporters don't know who Malik is. And so Bale steps forward to talk and Malik just sort of vanishes into the background into this crowd. <laughs> and that is like, other than the shot of him that always gets circulated of him standing in three quarter profile with the hat on, that is all of Terrence Malik that I know other than his films. And I just, the idea that he's going to go before I ever get the chance to, before anyone ever gets yeah. the chance to talk to him on the record. I've, I've asked his collaborators. I got to talk to Martin Sheen about a movie once and I just had to push in and say, look, um, he meant, I think he mentioned Malik in, in conversation. He said, Terry. And I'm like, do you mean Terrence Malik? He's like, yeah. Like, do you still talk? Do you hang out? And he's like, yeah, we, we talk about basketball mostly. And just the idea that he is out there living that completely normal life and that he stayed in touch with people for that long that he's worked with. I just, he seems like the, the most fascinating, inspiring figure. And oh, yeah. I don't want to call him a prophet because I don't believe in that stuff. But it feels like he but has figured out the way. look what he does to you. It's so fascinating, right? Like, no, I wouldn't use that word ever either. But look what he does to us. We flirt with using the word freaking profit. You know, it's like, <laughs> look what he does to your brain. It's so confusing. And I think that that's what's interesting is, you know, yeah, he doesn't appear anywhere. He won't talk to anyone about his films. And I realize in the course of this conversation, why? Because actually, we don't have the words for it. Like what his mm. films do or what he's trying to do is contained within the film and it really cannot be parsed out in words. Like we're trying valiantly, but I don't think it's possible to succeed at a conversation that really gets to the heart of what his films are doing to a person when they work or if the person is open and receptive. I think whatever transformation occurs in you as a result of what he does at his best 
it's not something that can be put into words. I don't think it's something that there are words for. Yeah. And I don't think that we would be able to get a satisfying explanation out of him, right? Because nothing he says is going to validate my personal theory or yours, mm-hmm. and they're all slightly different. <sighs> but also, yeah. I think his films are the words he has. I think that any other words he has would be muddying what he's already communicated. Like, I get, I really get why he can't, he doesn't talk about his films. I think it would be a huge mistake. Yeah. Keeps them, it keeps them just ineffable enough. Yeah. And we keep coming back to them. We keep trying to explore them and figure it out. This is their, their gospels. God damn it. This is where we are again. God damn it. He did it to us again. (laughs) Every time. (laughs) Uh, Well, the, the final question on the podcast is always the same, but I think we more or less covered it, which is that, you know, like if, is there anything of, of this film in particular, of, of the Thin Red Line, or of Malik's work that you've tried to use for yourself, or borrowed, or stolen, or? Let me think about I mean, it. I feel like I wasn't prepared for this. Um, I mean, I can feed you one. Yeah, go it, for it, it does. It does occur to me that the scene at the end of Stories We Tell, the silence, that forty-five seconds or eighty seconds or however long it is, where we're just allowed to steep in the in the loss. Um, you know, I I seen that with an audience a couple of times now and every time it's just it doesn't strike me as Malikian but it does strike me as something that you might have inferred from his work or or, or do, you mean, do you mean the um the sequence where it's on everybody's face when they're thinking yeah. about my mom dying oh, okay interesting yeah because I, when I've seen it with an audience it has the same effect it first it's absolute rock hard silence Like, you can feel the room responding and digesting the image. And then, every time I've seen it with a crowd, people start to cry, but it's like popcorn kernels. It's just like these bursts of sobs in different parts of the auditorium moving from the front to the back every single time. Wow. That's amazing. I don't don't think I've really noticed that because I've seen it so rarely with an audience because I I just couldn't watch it at a certain point. So it's so nice to know that that has that impact. I had no idea. When I think about my films, I maybe don't see as much Malik as I do like see the influence of, you know, Bergman or, you know, even, you know, documentaries I've seen, but Mm -hmm. I see, um, I just see so much of him in how I try to live my life. I think that actually his impact has been on how I live, not how I make films. I think, and and I think it's been profound. I think it's like, um, the closest thing I've ever had to religion are, are Terrence Malick's really good films. And no, it's not all of his films. I didn't respond to all of his films. <laughs> there, there are films that are like almost exclusively women twirling in fields. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're not the ones that stay. They're not the ones that stay. But The Thin Red Line and his latest film, which we saw together, um, they have that impact on me where it, it makes me want to be a better person and it makes me think about how I'm living and it makes me notice the sublime in everyday life. I wish I had that clarity. Um, but I, I think, yeah, Jesus's life was a demand, right? Like that's not something I've ever thought about in any way until the end of a hidden life until he put it out there and framed it in a way that made it contemporary and real. And even though the film is set in the forties, it's about the here and now. And you just, if if any movie stays with me for more than twenty four hours these days, it's a small miracle. Yeah. It's just the it's the way the industry works, right? I mean, these things are not supposed to linger with you, but, but yeah. Yeah, he's still doing, doing something. something. You just want, I think, especially now, you just want someone to aspire to be. I mean, we're filled with 
images of people behaving in the most sort of nihilistic way possible and spreading hatred and disinformation and just have a filmmaker, whether it's religious or not, just hold up an image of someone who is living a life um, that you that you would like to aspire to live or that's living within a framework that looks like it's producing some good. It's it's like a balm because it's just not there right now in in the outside world very much. I mean, we're seeing it now with frontline healthcare workers for sure. Yeah. We're seeing it now with PSWs. We're seeing it, but in terms of what's you know flooding our airwaves right now, it's really nice to have characters that you can look up to and think in a time of crisis. I hope I would be behaving like this. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I live in terror of being tested because I'm afraid I won't live up to it. Me too. Yeah. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> but still, good to have the models. Good to study the models. Yes. Yeah. And as long as these films are accessible, we can point to that and say, you know, like, this is what you should go for. Yeah. Aspirational cinema. Aspirational cinema. My thanks to Sarah Polly, whose next film will hopefully arrive a little sooner than The Thin Red Line did after Days of Heaven. Until then, you should check out Alias Grace. It's on CBC Gem in Canada and on Netflix everywhere else in the world. Or go find Stories We Tell, which is streaming for free to Canadians at nfb.ca, and it's available in the U.S. on Amazon Prime Video. You can find Sarah on Twitter at RealSarahPolly, all one word, and you can find The Thin Red Line in a beautiful Blu-ray and DVD edition in the Criterion Collection. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, as is A Hidden Life, which just landed on HBO Max in the U.S. and on Crave in Canada. Really. It's amazing. You should see it. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're pretty good. Stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Terrence Malick would want you to be careful. I'll see you next time.